Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week that saw the arrest of a former president by the government that he oversaw only three years ago. Although we knew it was coming, the image of a glowering and taciturn Trump not even deigning to speak his not guilty plea brought home the strangeness and significance of the days we're living through. The allegations in the well-crafted indictment from special counsel Jack Smith are overwhelming, and Trump's odds of beating the charges on the merits look impossibly long. But a narrow escape hatch has widened with Trump's lucky draw of Judge Eileen Cannon, who could indulge his delay strategies or otherwise gum up the case enough to prevent a guilty verdict before November 2024, at which point, if Trump can somehow pull off a return to the White House, all bets are off for the case and the country. In fact, the Mar-a-Lago indictment is completely tethered to next year's presidential contest in a way that is toxic for the country and threatening to the legal process. The latest signal was the message that Trump's defenders like Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy advanced in lockstep, offering not a word on the merits of the case, but blaming the indictment on President Biden, whom Trump called the most corrupt president in history before promising to appoint a special prosecutor to go after his political rival. However, a schism has begun to develop within the ranks of Republicans, with a considerable number of prominent voices acknowledging the bona fides of the charges and the untold risk that Trump's crimes have visited on the national security. To trace our way along the Mobius strip of law and politics that the Trump indictment and the 2024 election present, I'm really pleased to welcome three of the country's most respected observers of the political scene. And they are... Robert Costa the chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News. Prior to CBS, Robert was a national political reporter for the Washington Post and served as managing editor of PBS's Washington Week. In 2021, he co-authored the New York Times number one bestseller, Peril, with Bob Woodward, which we covered as part of our Talking Books series. Robert has been in Florida this week reporting on the federal Trump indictment. Thank you very much for joining Robert Costa. Oh, it's my pleasure to be back. Thank you. Norm Ornstein, a regular, I'm very happy to say, on Talking Feds and an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a contributing editor for The Atlantic and co-host of the podcast Words Matter with Kavita Patel. He's also a prolific author, including the bestseller One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. Every time you're on, I consider axing that post-colon part of the title, but I just never can. It's too good. Norm Ornstein, thanks for returning to Talking Feds, as always. Always a pleasure, Harry. <laughs> and Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon returns. She represents Pennsylvania's 5th Congressional District in the House of Representatives, and currently serves on, among others, the House Judiciary Committee. She chairs the House Caucuses on Access to Legal Aid and Youth Mentoring, and comes by that with great experience because before her election in 2018, she served as the Education Law Center and co-chair of the Voting Rights Task Force 
of the Association of Pro Bono Counsel and was extremely active in pro bono in her own large firm. Congresswoman, always a pleasure to welcome you to Talking Fits. Thanks. You have to remember, I'm on rules, too. That used to be a quiet backwater, but no longer. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, everything has changed uh, in the last eight years. All right. And in the last week, because a former president of the United States was arrested by the U.S. government, he recently led for the first time in the nation's history, and he sat glowering in court while his lawyer delivered his uh, plea of not guilty. Robert, you were down there on Tuesday, even with the restrictions on reporting, but you were as close as it came. What did it feel like? What was the kind of sense in the air? Well, it's good to be with you all. The, the one anecdote that sticks with me is that inside the courtroom, special counsel Jack Smith never broke his stare in terms of looking at Trump, looked at him the entire time, especially when Trump got up and slowly exited the room after the arraignment. Trump was looking at reporters, but Smith, according to everyone in the room, was always looking at Trump. And this was really a moment for Jack Smith, for the Justice Department, after nearly a decade of Trump being investigated on different levels, especially with the Russia investigation. But whether it's the government in the federal level or the New York City or Georgia, to see it all play out in federal court, it brought it to a new legal, political and historic dynamic that we just haven't seen in this country before. And it's going to be potentially a brutal fight, even if the evidence about Trump's alleged conduct makes some observers believe it could be an open and shut case. This is something that is going to be complicated potentially by the notion of executive privilege. And Trump will certainly appeal if he's convicted, maybe even all the way up to the Supreme Court. But for now, we're looking at a Justice Department through the special counsel that wants to have a speedy trial, in the words of Jack Smith, the special counsel. But Trump and his legal team, based on my reporting, are preparing a lot of pretrial motions to dismiss the case, to dismiss different parts of the evidence trove that have been uh, acquired, especially the attorney-client privilege material that was granted by a federal judge to be used as evidence due to the crime fraud exception. So there's some moving parts in this case, and Trump's still struggling to find attorneys. He has Todd Blanche, a veteran criminal defense lawyer, now leading his legal team after the departure of two key lawyers for a long time on this case. And he's likely to bring some new people on, but it's very fluid on the Trump side at this moment, both legally and politically. Man, what a load to consider. I hadn't heard that anecdote, and it's really riveting. It's got this kind of bristling, almost athletic feel. I'm thinking of the stare down with, you know, Michael Phelps in the Olympics or whatever. Smith, we've seen so little of him, just that 90-second speech last Friday. And that detail of continuously staring at Trump gives a quite a dramatic turn on the whole thing. Wow, so much to talk about. Let's see. So the indictment, you know, we'd learned of it briefly last week. Now it's been unsealed. Let me ask anyone, including Norman, the Congresswoman, what stood out about it to you as a charging document? It's interesting. I was um, had dinner with some friends this weekend, and one of them was a former AUSA. And he said, wow, I really loved that indictment. It was elegantly written. You know, it was a really powerful piece of work. And boy, would I love to prosecute that case because it had everything in there. And of course, with these cases, the, the tricky part is always intent. 
And here we had reams of it, you know, going back to the 2016 statements that the disgraced former president uttered when he was saying other people weren't properly handling documents. And then, of course, the tape recording they apparently have. So looks like they have a lot of goods and, and it fits very neatly. Can I speak to that for a second? I'm sure Norm has ideas, but, you know, we read it quickly or even absorbed the details, but this is as literary as the Department of Justice ever gets. If you think about this, there were easily dozens of drafts and wordsmithing by everyone and a very, very careful and I also agree successful effort not just to charge the crimes. It was a so-called speaking indictment, which also laid things out, but I thought very adroitly sounded certain themes that were not necessary for the bare charging or even the narrative, but they wanted to really bring home. For example, paragraph six, he's not charged with showing the, with disseminating the information, but it's in the indictment and it's one of the things that are in there that make the gravity, not just the extent, but the gravity of the conduct, you know, come home, the, the harm to the national security. And in that way, it was, I think, a clean but also thematic uh, document. And I can, having been there, just imagine how many hands it went through and the, the whole process that produced it. Well, there's so much to say. It was extraordinarily powerful and damning. And even more damning is the reality that the prosecution has a whole lot more that they didn't put in the indictment that we know. Donald Trump had a horrible week, not just this. 20 of his Secret Service detail now have spilled their guts. I'm sure he believes some of them will be loyal to him. And we know that he corrupted the Secret Service. But I would bet you that among the 20, there are some who told the truth. And they were there for a whole lot. Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, who was there on January 6th and who had his own levels of culpability, now has testified it is very likely that he cut a deal and went against Trump. Trump, at this point, has to know that the noose is tightening and he can only hope that Judge Aileen Cannon, if she does not recuse herself, which itself would be an embarrassment to the legal profession uh, if she stuck with this, that she will do something that will help get him off. And we will talk about this more, I am sure, but it's frightening to think about what power a judge has if a judge is in the pocket of a defendant. We saw this to a considerable degree with Kyle Rittenhouse, where the judge swayed a jury, I believe, to an acquittal. But you also know that uh, she could do an, a directed verdict. With all of that, Trump also knows now that the feds are circling in on Bedminster. When we had the video of all the boxes being loaded on the Trump plane to go from Palm Beach to Bedminster, I thought, how could they not do a search warrant for Bedminster? Now I'm thinking they probably did, and we just didn't know about it. But I'm wondering if they've exhumed Ivana's grave site, which <laughs> is a logical, you know, she was cremated. They made a full grave on the golf course. You got to wonder what's there. 
But we also know that there is likely an indictment coming on January 6th. Even as he was arraigned, we had witnesses, false electors coming in to speak to that grand jury. The Fannie Willis great big shoe is going to drop in August. For the first time in his life, having escaped his criminal behavior with bribery, with delays, with armies of lawyers, Trump's army of lawyers now looks like Russia's army, you know, conscripts coming in, knowing that they're going to be fodder and others who have deserted. And it is a time of reckoning for him. I thought Robert's answer was was broad, but yours is panoramic <laughs> from the Russian army to Ivanka's grave. It's true. There's just so, so much going on here. Let, let's try to unpack it a little. I do want to say two points. One, the cavalry is coming, including uh, January 6th stuff, I think. And two, the things we don't know. Meadows, a huge thunderbolt we just found out two weeks ago for both mar-a-lago but especially january 6th and we find out just today tom fitton the non-lawyer whose advice trump seems to have taken that he doesn't have to give the the documents back he's figured big in the grand jury doj has played it by the rules and that means there's all kinds of stuff that is not in the indictment as you say let me just position it a little bit and back to you robert what are we expecting in the next one, two, three kind of procedural steps? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in terms of location. Does it end up in Palm Beach or because of logistics and security, does it end up in that same Miami courthouse, the federal courthouse in Miami? And one thing I'm watching is the pace in which Judge Cannon starts to schedule things. Now, the the special counsel has asked for a speedy trial, but if Cannon starts scheduling things months down the line. That's not necessarily a speedy procedure, especially for some of these processing pretrial appearances where they talk through different issues. Trump has been told not to talk to witnesses about the case, but many of these witnesses work for him, including Walt Nauta, who's the valet body person, Navy veteran. And co-conspirator. That one's got to give ground. They have to be able to prepare, but sorry, go ahead. No, that's exactly right. And the challenging thing for the Trump story is that it's not just on this federal case. You have Georgia looming as a possible indictment on the Fulton County level sometime in early August. The New York litigation continues a possible trial next year on the hush money payments. And what's interesting when you bring up Mark Meadows is that one part of this special counsel investigation that really deserves more attention is that, as Norm said, yes, he's working on having an ability to have charges somewhere other than Florida, such as New Jersey, due to a potential crime being committed at Bedminster, the former president's golf club, in terms of sharing a allegedly classified map to different people who were there. But the other thing to watch is, what about January 6th? Because January 6th is something where the special counsel has a full sweeping investigation ongoing. And Mark Meadows is someone who's seen as a very key witness for that investigation. And he's also a key witness for the documents investigation. So you have two tracks for the special counsel where multiple witnesses are overlapping with both investigations, which could provide the special counsel and the government an ability to, in a sense, leverage different witnesses for both cases and to say, look, we know you did this or that with John Eastman, Trump's lawyer, to talk about overturning the election. We know you had these conversations with Giuliani. You know, we really need you to talk about that more, but also talk about the documents because we're bringing you forth 
in that respect, there's a lot going on for Jack mm-hmm. Smith beyond just what's going on with the South Florida arraignment. Jack Smith is kind of the conductor of an of two orchestras simultaneously. Almost as though we need multi-district litigation here. Right. Um, given the range of uh, issues going on. I've heard a number of people opining about, well, speedy trial will fix this. But of course, speedy trial is something the defendant can always waive. And here, this is the guy who has perfected the art of dragging things out so much. And I am concerned about the fact that he's not able to get counsel. I think they had some special Prohac Vice proceeding to get the guy in front of him in Florida. But in our region, you mentioned Atlantic City before. I mean, lawyers won't represent this guy because they won't get paid. Contractors won't work with them because they won't get paid. So that alone could be a drag for a while. I mean, this to me is by far the most concrete risk about canon. You mentioned, you know, a directed acquittal, Norm. Man, I don't think that can happen. But what he needs is just to get this past November and to both Robert and the Congresswoman's recent point. They don't have counsel yet. Now that's going to show up finally having gotten one, that counsel is going to stand up and say, oh, your honor, it's a very complicated case. I've just come on. I need, uh, let's say, three months just to get up to speed. If you think of this as if it moved with dispatch as ending around next summer, that gives sort of six months to work with. And man, between different delays, just indulging him and not being hard, you know, even if she weren't in the tank, there are, as Robert says, several motions that I don't think they succeed, but some of them, like we know they're going for prosecutorial misconduct, can eat up time. Evidentiary hearings, side litigation about whom they get to depose and the like. But Let's return for a second. I So I think it's a great point about January 6th. We've always thought that that is way in the distance and much more, it represented a different kind of policy question. Do you really go there? Seems to me they're over that hump now. The DOJ from their conduct and Smith's conduct, this is just my surmised and just wonder what your thoughts are about this. I don't think they're going to treat it as a special, well, that's a political issue or that's more complicated. I think a clean, discreet case, because there are sort of five or six there, and we know that he's had in the grand jury recently a few of the phony electors, I can see him wrapping up one of those cases and bringing it really soon. And that's, talk about an insurance policy for Cannon's delay. That could lap the whole thing. I agree with that. We're talking about a scheduling nightmare if we have a criminal trial in New York, a case in Georgia, the case in Florida, one in Bedminster, one in Washington, D.C. If Cannon pushed this past the election, it makes it much easier then to expedite other trials that could be deeply damaging. On January 6th, I was at the first debate in Cleveland between Biden and Trump, a terrible experience because it was a small room with not a lot of people. And we know that Trump had been diagnosed with COVID and still came. And his uh, lick spittles like Jim Jordan were Good wandering one, around Norm. the room. That's my favorite word now. Yeah. Perfidy is the second choice. We had Jim Jordan and Marsha Blackburn walking around without masks. We had his whole family and entourage doing that. But what's most uh, memorable about that debate was Trump saying of the Proud Boys, 
stand back and stand by. The people convicted such an unusual thing of seditious conspiracy. If indeed we have evidence of communications then with Trump and the Proud Boys, we're talking about more serious charges. And you almost have to. We've established that, the UJ, that this was sedition. If he's in yeah. charge, how do you take a pass on that? Lindsey Graham, the chief lickspittle. <laughs> Can, how about lickspittle in chief? Lickspittle okay. in chief. Okay, lickspittle in chief, who yeah. yesterday said, after, first of all, a former head of the Judiciary Committee completely lying about the Presidential Records Act, but saying yesterday Republicans would go to DEFCON 1 if there were charges brought on January 6th because it would be in D.C. and anybody will get convicted there. To me, that's a sign that they know what's coming and they know what the outcome will be. And the outcome's going to be there not because you have a jury that will convict on anything, because you'll have an honest jury that will look at what is going to be, I suspect, overwhelmingly powerful evidence of somebody engineering a violent insurrection for his own purposes to overturn an election. Especially if they have Mark Meadows, because the facts are there yeah. and it's a matter of intent. But if they get to there, then it doesn't stop at the White House. There was active collaboration in the House of Congress as well. Wow. So the other big one and talk about Meadows, I actually see this as, I, I wonder what you think about it, but that is... When you do the whole lay of the land, I don't know, though, what happens to the, what, 20 Congress people. We heard we heard just this week that there were a dozen of them in on the Pence issue and meeting with the White House. And that's something the committee didn't go to the bottom of. And we don't, as far as I know, the department isn't working on. I wonder if that's not the kind of orphan that somehow falls away and how we are, or if we are, going to get to the bottom of that really integral part. That's just hard because that continues to poison the atmosphere here every day with the things that they're willing to censure people for and the things that they aren't. And we've just seen this race to the bottom and, you know, they want to impeach everybody in the Biden administration and they want to, you know, throw intellectual giants, shall we say, like Adam Schiff off his committees to punish him for daring to uh, go after truth. Trump. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this isn't a group that's big on profiles and courage. That's for damn sure. So let's focus on them and the, and the kind of political reaction. So, yes, most of the Republican leadership in the House anyway, and they and to me, they had pre-written talking points that said nothing about the case on the merits and Lindsey Graham with a couple ridiculous arguments. There is some schism in the Republican Party, but McCarthy and others are seemingly all in. Do you see the Republicans as staying in basic lockstep, even as the different scenarios that you outlined eventuate, assuming they do? Aren't they getting nervous about being all in for this guy as more and more rains down on him? The dynamic here is intriguing to me because I've been covering the Republican response to Trump really since December 2014 when he started to think about running for president. And the challenge for the Justice Department and the FBI is while Chris Ray is someone who was appointed by Trump and the Justice Department has many prosecutors and the justice system has many judges appointed by Trump, because of 
especially the Russia investigation, the Justice Department's reputation on the American right has been poisoned by Trump and Republicans believing it's in some way a political institution, even if the special counsel and the Justice Department function independently. Yes, the attorney general for any Justice Department is a presidential appointee, but independent law enforcement operation inside the federal government. You hear it again and again from Trump. This is a prosecution from Biden. He's prosecuting me. He's directing it. Yeah, that's the talking point. Always mention Biden, right? Yeah. And it's not just mentioning Biden. They're putting him in the role of the attorney general, that he's in some way orchestrating this. And this is going to be a real challenge because as much as the special counsel and the indictment may be eloquently written and it may be calmly stated and as apolitical as possible, Trump seizes on details like a spouse's documentary work or political donation and cast the entire thing as politics, politics, politics. And the the challenge for the Justice Department here is this does come in the middle of a presidential campaign. We know they often try to avoid having charging decisions and politics overlap, but you can't avoid it in this circumstance. And Merrick Garland, I think, is going to be tested. He came out this week for the first time to talk about the Justice Department, talk about the special counsel, defended its integrity. But I do wonder, as a reporter who travels constantly to talk to voters, whether Garland's broke through and whether he's going to need to do more. Yes, he wants to leave the special counsel to be independent. But I'm just telling you anecdotally from my own reporting, Trump's out there with a drumbeat every day saying this is a political partisan witch hunt by the Biden administration to take me down in an election. And Merrick Garland comes out there and goes in a very calm, civil way. This is a Justice Department with integrity. We do everything by the book. The people are hearing the Trump clamor much more than they're hearing the Merrick Garland whisper. And that's going to remain almost certainly and At least the initial indication is it's kind of effective. A CBS News poll, 76% of likely Republican primary voters thought the indictment was politically motivated. 61% said it didn't change their views on Trump. I mean, normally AGs will just keep his head down. They'll say it in court. But Robert's totally right in terms of the poisoning of the broader political landscape. And does it fall to Garland to somehow or anyone to try to combat that? I was just going to say what struck me immediately about the response from the House Republican leadership was Biden indicted Trump. McCarthy said it, Stefanik said it. I mean, they all just came in that way hot and, you know, totally blowing past special counsels and everything else. And, And that's scary that it's being framed that way. What I have appreciated is we have seen some separation. I mean, the Senate Republicans are staying kind of quiet. We've seen some of the House Republicans, Bacon and a couple others, say, wow, you know, this is serious stuff. So the well-written indictment got to some of them. But the broad swath of the inmates who are currently running the House Asylum are all in on this. And Jordan, he's been setting the stage for this. He's been setting the stage to attack everything as political. And this defund the FBI, defund the Justice Department. They're now talking about defunding the special counsel. They may not be able to do it, but that's what they're going to scream about for quite some time. So the framing of it and how it fits in their bigger narrative of big government is out to get us, those are both really troubling. But I am encouraged by the fact that some people seem to be willing to break a little bit. 
including some grown-ups in the Republican camp who like Bill Barr and Christie, etc. And I, I know you have comments on that, Norm, but I also let me let me fold in your best buddy McConnell here because he's sphinx like perfectly silent, maybe ruining the day he didn't put the knife in when he could have right after the impeachment. But so will he be able to stay you know, completely non-committal. And I just want to add that to you as the master yeah. of the Congress that you are. Yeah. Okay, so starting with McConnell, McConnell has one objective at this point, which is to regain the majority in the Senate in 2024. And to do that, he does not want to alienate any of the senators who are up or create any more difficulty than he can in these campaigns. And that's why he's saying nothing. He's not going to defend Trump because that would be getting out over his skis a little bit more. I would add the one who impressed me the most this week was somebody I never would have expected. Ken Buck, a charter member of the Freedom Caucus, former prosecutor, went on TV and basically said these are deadly serious charges and then went on to say Donald Trump set the standard when he said of Hillary Clinton, she mishandled classified information. She should not be in any office, including dog catcher. And he said, apply that to Trump. Now he stands out along with Bacon and most of the others are following along in the footsteps of the House Lickspittle in chief, Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The one comment really got to me, which is, all the boxes in the bathroom, well, you can lock a bathroom. Apparently, he doesn't realize you lock a bathroom from the inside. <laughs> so what that meant was the Chinese spies could, who paid the $200,000 fee to wander all over Mar-a-Lago could go into the bathroom and lock the door so no one would intrude while they went through the boxes and took out the documents. But there's another important dynamic here that I think Robert would reflect on as well. We are starting to see a lot of prominent people. I object to you, Harry, calling Bill Barr a grown-up. Chris Christie may be a little different, although not a lot different. But we saw what you would expect, Asa Hutchinson saying, this is serious stuff. And then not for a long time, other presidential candidates. Then you got Nikki Haley. And we began to see others get distance from Trump. We saw National Review not the odious editorial page editors of the Wall Street Journal who openly lied about the Presidential Records Act saying it says presidents can do anything they want with their documents. But you get National Review. He lost Jonathan Turley. What happens when you lose a Jonathan Turley, right? <laughs> and I think what's happening here is there are Republicans privately saying and some more publicly saying, this is really bad stuff. If we attach ourselves completely to Trump, the whole party could go right down the tubes. That doesn't mean he can't win a nomination. You'd still say he is a front runner. Ron DeSantis, and we should talk a little bit more about the New York Times piece today, the chilling one about how each of them would completely politicize the Justice Department. And Trump himself came out and said he totally politicized the Both yeah. of them would use the Justice Department to go after their adversaries and enemies. It would create a police state. But we're starting to see some cracks in the foundation of Trump's support at the elite level. How far that goes, I don't know. 
But if we start to get these trials, and you have to hope we'll get at least audio coverage of the trials, maybe video coverage, those swing voters, those suburban voters who are in Congresswoman Scanlon's district and in key states, who are Republicans who, you know, don't want to go against their own party, but I think would be increasingly appalled if you have any open-mindedness at all. You cannot look at this behavior by Trump, his own lawyer turning against him, saying he told the lawyer to break the law and not say, this is terrible. We cannot possibly put this monster back in the White House. I think you're right that we're seeing the cracks in the foundation. He doesn't have the control that he did. They literally put out a call for everyone to parrot the talking points and not everyone stepped up and a few people divide them. And I think the really interesting meme of what that means is that Jack Smith can sit in court and stare him down and Trump won't meet his eyes because he can't control that. And then there's the content of the talking points because they're really, to your point, Norm, no one tries to defend his conduct. It's only, well, Biden did this or Hillary Clinton did that. And how long can they continue to say that and that only as more and more focus is on Trump? And now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hi, I'm Maribel Hernandez-Rivera a Deputy National Political Director at the ACLU. The promise of America is to serve as a beacon of hope and freedom for people fleeing persecution, violence, war, and human rights violations around the world. Yet, the Biden administration has chosen to replicate harmful and illegal Trump-era policies that ban people from seeking asylum at the southern border, betraying the ideals that represent the best of our country. Biden's asylum ban is causing needless suffering and placing people at grave risk. The ACLU successfully sued the Trump administration when it implemented asylum bans. And now we're suing the Biden administration over their own ban. For more on how the ACLU is fighting for the rights of asylum seekers, go to ACLU.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we dig up the dirt on the agave plant to find out the difference between tequila and mezcal. So first things first, tequila is a type of mezcal much like bourbon is a type of whiskey. In general, tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequilas. Allow me to explain. Tequila can only come from the blue agave plant in specific regions of Mexico, like the region of Jalisco, where the city of tequila is located. No coincidence there. Mezcal, however, can be made from many varieties of agave, specifically from the heart of the agave, known as the piña. The distillery process for tequila and mezcal is also different. Tequila is produced by steaming the blue agave and then distilling it in copper stills for a toasty, clean taste. 
On the other hand, mezcal, which appropriately means oven-cooked agave, is cooked in earthen pits with wood and charcoal before being distilled in clay pots. No wonder mezcal, which is typically consumed straight, has more of a smoky, earthy taste of course, the best way to get to know the differences between tequila and mezcal is to pick up a bottle of each from your total wine and more and pour hundreds of years of tradition right into your glass. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Well, maybe this is a good time to move to more of the sort of, of politics and the way this Folds in, what a bizarre, on top of everything else, feature, uh, you know, the way the multiple prosecutions of a president connect to a presidential election. So it's maybe the singular feature of the indictment is, is that the case is completely intertwined with the 2024 election. Robert, let me start with you because you're you focus so much on the election, you're thinking about it in advance. How does this indictment and the ones coming change the 2024 primary landscape, if at all? I think the biggest development in the Republican race has been the entry of two candidates, Chris Christie and Mike Pence. And I'll yeah. very quickly explain why I believe this is important. Both recently, yeah. Both recently. Yes, Ron DeSantis is Trump's looming most serious rival at this point in the race in terms of polling, certainly in terms of fundraising. But Pence and Christie intrigue me because they're mounting different kinds of arguments against Trump. DeSantis has been having this refrain for months that Trump's not conservative enough on COVID and how he handled that on different policy issues. So coming at Trump from an ideological level. When Pence entered the race in Iowa, I was there with him. And uh, Pence started to talk about Trump does not respect the rule of law and Trump does not necessarily understand the Constitution. Now, he did it in his Mike Pence way, which is kind of Midwestern, calm, not very pointed. But he said those words out loud, effectively, that Trump pressured him to overturn an American election. And I've done a ton of reporting on this. I mean, Trump brought Pence into the Oval Office on January 5th and all but badgered him repeatedly and to break his constitutional oath and try to do something nefarious to overturn an election. And Pence has not only probably acknowledged it to a grand jury according to our reporting, but he just said it in front of the American people in his announcement. So you have his own vice president saying that Trump is not someone who necessarily understands or respects the rule of law. Pretty serious charge from someone not only in the race, but who served alongside you. And then Chris Christie, yes, we all know the, the photo of Chris Christie standing behind Trump. He was certainly a Trump ally for much of the Trump presidency. But and this is not to excuse or talk away any of that with Christie. All that is real and part of his story. But Christie's also a former U.S. attorney. And he is someone who has a prosecutor's personality. And he is able to take on Trump on a law and justice oh, level. I guess I, I guess I have to absorb that. Sorry, go ahead. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, just hear me out. Let me make Fair enough. Point. Fair enough. Go ahead. You're talking to a former prosecutor, Robert. That's Robert knows saying, that. Robert knows yeah, that. Right. I'm well aware. Very shift in his chair. <laughs> so he's a certain kind of former prosecutor. Right. He's a bombastic <laughs> former U.S. attorney in New Jersey. He clashed with pharmaceutical companies back then a lot. But he's the so someone who could be on the debate stage with Trump if he makes it, if Trump actually shows up, and really cut into Trump on his conduct in a way that Pence doesn't with his own rhetorical style. So you, you have two people hovering around Trump 
who can cut into him with different arguments beyond just the DeSantis way of saying, oh, he's not conservative. And what do you think? Do they see themselves as basically mounting kamikaze missions? No chance of the nomination, but bringing it, it down. I know Christie's been described as a kamikaze candidate. I don't think they're kamikaze candidates at all, having covered Christie since 09 from his first gubernatorial interviewed him, I don't know, 100 times, 50 times, whatever, and Pence the same. These are people who really take themselves seriously politically, and they actually believe they have a shot at the nomination if Trump collapses. I guess everybody does. That's just part of being in politics, right? You really look in the mirror and really believe it. I want to serve this up in addition, which is, you know, we have those two recently, others, Asa Hutchinson, um, does a crowded field play to Trump's advantage? It seemed to in 2015, or does it give rise to the dynamic where where one or more of the candidates can focus on on bringing him down, leaving it to DeSantis or anyone else to waltz through? Is it overall a good dynamic for him as there are a lot of Republicans in there? Trump's campaign sees it as a positive, even though all the legal stuff's a negative. I mean, he's sucking the political oxygen out of the room. His rivals are suffocating in terms of fundraising, press attention. I mean, I go cover Nikki Haley and there's 25 people and three or four reporters there in Iowa. That's not what you want at this stage in a presidential campaign. And no one's really figured out, though Christie's closest to it, how do you get attention in an era where Trump continues to be a global news story all while you're trying to just get some some action in Iowa and New Hampshire? Though Pence's strategy is interesting. It reminds me of Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum and Ted Cruz. Sometimes if you go all in in a place like Iowa, Maybe in six to 10 months, you start to get a break there. And all Pence really needs- Jimmy Carter. Right. Right. And Jimmy Carter, the, my favorite story about Jimmy Carter, he does, he's not even in Iowa when he does well there in 76. He's in New York. Why is he in New York the night of the Iowa caucuses? Because he wants to make sure he gets on TV. So if Pence could get a bounce in Iowa or someone like Pence. They're in the race probably at least through Super Tuesday. So that's kind of the, the long-term play you're seeing from a lot of them. I would add uh, just one caveat. You could be in Iowa for six months, and that doesn't mean you'll move any needle. Chris Dodd moved his family to Iowa. Chris was a pretty damned impressive senator, and yet he got like 1%. So these ploys, I'm not sure work. Nikki Haley, to me, is the weather vane. She will say or do anything if she thinks it will advantage her, and we've seen that repeatedly. When she said, this is serious business. That's what really got me thinking that a significant part of the Republican establishment no longer believes that attaching themselves to Trump's ankles will work. Maybe biting his ankle a little bit will help. But having said that, I think your point about the larger field, given the Republican nominating rules, which still are winner take all in the critical states, If you've still got 10 candidates by the time North Carolina, South Carolina rolls around, Trump's in a pretty damned advantageous position. The one plus, perhaps, is that if he did end up in jail as president, he could probably hold his cabinet meetings in his cell because they'll all be there as well. That's a good one. That's a good one. I do remain kind of fascinated by Chris Christie because I, I appreciate his kamikaze efforts, but I, I do think he wouldn't be in it unless... He really thought he had a shot somewhere. But I keep wondering how much of it has to do with the fact that Trump almost killed him with respect to that debate where he didn't tell anyone that he had COVID. And 
Christy ended up in the hospital and almost died. Does that feed into it? I don't know him well enough to know, but it's something literary about that. It's interesting that um, the one name that barely come up is the one that was on everyone's lips until recently, DeSantis, who continues to get panned. And I think to Robert's point is having a lot of trouble with fundraising. It's clear he's his current strategy is to get to the right of Trump on social issues. Does he have a longer game plan at this point or does he just have to wait and hope that somebody else somehow, somewhere, including the Department of Justice, brings Trump down? You know, I think uh, Chris Christie is Ron DeSantis's worst nightmare. I watched the debate with Charlie Crist, the gubernatorial debate. Charlie is not the best debater the world has ever seen. He just filleted Ron DeSantis. DeSantis does not take criticism well, and he froze in that debate. And nobody is better at eviscerating somebody in a debate than Chris Christie. He has that enormous talent. DeSantis is just hoping that he simply stays there as the alternative to Trump for the people who want a Trumpist. And I suspect we also have to keep an eye on Glenn Youngkin, who is lurking in the background as- I haven't heard his name for a bit. As the genial alternative to DeSantis. His views and the way he would approach governance, I think, is very little different from DeSantis. He is a dangerous man who reporters, including the Washington Post when he ran for governor, treated him as a moderate because he smiled, looked like a dad in a fleece vest. He is an all-in Trumpist. And I think because he could finance his own campaign as well, is sort of waiting for DeSantis to collapse uh, to maybe fill that lane. And the question is, how many of these people can stick around past Iowa if they don't get the money? Robert's right. There's only so much money out there. And most of these candidates, except for the ones who can finance their own campaigns, are probably not going to be able to survive. And it may be that it's a much reduced field after we get through the first couple of contests. And real quick on that, I sat down with uh, Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, in recent days for CBS News. And I posted the whole 20 minute interview online on YouTube and I pressed him on how a lot of donors are articulating privately what Norm just outlined, which is a sense that if DeSantis doesn't start to really get momentum against Trump and isn't establishing himself as the standard bearer for the non-Trump wing of the Republican Party, does someone else get drafted to come in maybe in the winter, maybe even in early 2024? Could it be Governor Yunkin? Or maybe Georgia's Brian Kemp. Kemp's in- interesting because he's as conservative as Yunkin and DeSantis on almost every policy, if not more conservative. Yet on the question of election integrity in 2020, he famously clashed with Trump, defended Georgia's election as Trump repeatedly attacked it and called for a special session. So that gave Kemp, in the eyes of many major donors in the party, a, a strong profile because he was able to stand up to Trump but not waver in any way ideologically from being supportive of big business and tax cuts and Republican social conservative policy. When I said to him, Governor, is there any chance you're going to you know, listen to people who are trying to draft you or are you going to close the door on 2024 in any way? I gave him about three different chances to close the door and he didn't do it. Mm. And that just that tells you a lot about what's really happening at the highest levels behind the scenes. Sometimes the silence is the, the greatest reveal. 
and that wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing with Yunkin and with Kemp is, is what is pretty frightening. I mean, I did a lot of work around election protection when he was secretary of state down there. And, and he was very active in trying to throw people off the rolls and closing down polling places and stuff. So he, he may have defended Georgia when uh, push came to shove, but he was no zealot in terms of open access to the polling place. He influenced his own campaign as secretary of state running for governor that he did not recuse himself and did all kinds of things to try and suppress votes does not suggest the level of integrity on elections that we might prefer. Surely. Um, but look, I, you know, we're talking, will there be maybe 10 people surviving in North Carolina or will the field be winnowed? We are six months away from Iowa and with every week and every new indictment, Trump's lead becomes stronger. The fundraising folks become less available to others. Is there not a point even before Iowa at which his lead just becomes practically insurmountable? You have a lot of smart people who've already anointed him the certain nominee. Two indictments coming down don't seem to have moved the needle. Could the nomination, anyway, contest be over before it starts? I'm skeptical of that, Harry, for a couple of reasons. The next six months are going to have a lot of action, action that we talked about earlier. More is going to be revealed about what Trump did. Some of his supporters are going to start to think pragmatically that even though they love the guy and think that he could shoot not just a person in uh, broad daylight on Fifth Avenue, but take an AR-15 and mow down the entire avenue, are going to say, you know what, maybe he can't win and we need to win. So I could see some of that support getting softer by the time we get there. And remember, you have a couple of other candidates, Ramaswamy and now Doug Burgum, who can self-finance their own campaigns. You know, the governor of North Dakota, who was completely unheard of by anybody outside of North Dakota, is a billionaire. You know, you're going to have some people who are going to stick around. So maybe they're not formidable, but I could see Trump having some issues in a campaign if the next few months really do provide more fodder for the terrible things that he did. And remember, so many of the people who support him have not heard any of this stuff because the media that they listen to, and that includes, of course, Despicable Fox, which continues to promote him even after the Dominion case, and tribal social media and others don't know a lot of what Trump actually did. And including uh, the general public. I mean, more will be coming out. Yeah. I was just going to say, to Norm's point, there was actually an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer yesterday about the softening of support, not that these folks don't love Trump anymore, but the constant drama, the constant noise, they think it's hurting his chances to be elected. But I think that the downside of that is someone has to emerge because, yeah, people could splinter off, but they're going to Haley, they're going to DeSantis, they're going, you know, all over the place. Robert, last word to you on this, I think. I would echo what the Congresswoman said and what Norm said in that we're in such a dynamic time. My motto as a reporter, and I put it in front of my computer every day, two words, assume nothing. And never before have I felt that more strongly than now. We didn't even know mm -hmm. a few weeks ago that the special counsel would move this quickly. 
We didn't know even two weeks ago that the special counsel would choose to bring the charges in South Florida. It seems like, of course, now, of course, it's playing out like this. Of course, we didn't know much of this at all a few weeks ago. And I'm talking every reporter in the country who's a sharp reporter was on this trying to figure out things. And it was a surprise. It was just last week. Trump had a whole different legal team. We have so little visibility into what is going on legally with the special counsel, the amount of evidence he has. We know what the indictment has, but we don't know what else is out there. We don't know who's cooperating on January 6th. And January 6th to me remains the treasure trove of to be determined information because I spent 10 months with Bob Woodward kind of resigned from all current day reporting and just going back. And every day I feel like I would sit down with sources for hours and learn more and more. It was darker and darker. And so I'm almost jealous of the special counsel in the sense that he has subpoena power and the ability to spend all this time. We didn't even have subpoena power and we found stuff all the time. I can't imagine what they're finding. So yeah. again, assume nothing in terms of what really comes out on Trump. Now, look, this country could elect him again. Yeah. I don't rule that out at all, but we don't know what it means. We do know that Trump's explicitly now saying if he's elected again, he will run the Justice Department with a heavy, heavy hand and go after his political opponents. He's putting it in writing. And so this is a crossroads for American democracy as much as it is a crossroads for the Justice Department and Trump's political career. I just completely concur. I, you know, every few weeks I just take a step back and ponder and I'm left with two thoughts. One, wow, these are historic days. But two, wow, these are weird days. Just never been anything like it. And the different kinds of cross-cutting forces and dynamics, you know, make it as, as predictable as a you know, cyclone uh, with a tornado. Would that be right? Cyclone <laughs> with a tsunami. So we have just a minute for our talking five. And the question today is, we, we know that the, an effort failed to censure uh, Adam Schiff, but it was a totally meritless one. And that they even raised it was noteworthy. So question, whom will the Republicans in the House next move to censure and on what grounds? Five words or fewer, please. How's this? Kavanaugh, he loves Bud Light. <laughs> and five words exactly. I'll go next. Adam Schiff, over and over. <laughs> Mayorkas, always a target. Immigration important for Republicans. We'll condense that down. And I'm, man, you guys are ahead of me, but I'm going with Canada. Never much trusted them. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Robert Norm and Congresswoman Scanlon. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This week, we posted a really fascinating conversation with Superior Court Judge Stephen Frichero, who, as an assistant United States attorney, had a leading role in the investigation, apprehension, and trial while it lasted of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who died last week in prison at age 81. 
Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it, and you get some great content to boot. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McCardle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>